this, Rick? Yes. Okay. I take the I take the big kids upstairs. You get the little. All right. Kids. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Thank you, worship team. Jeff decided to take the week off and go to the men's retreat, so you guys got me today. <laughs> you know, it's good to be here. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, I just realized that this Tuesday marked our first full year of being in Nelson as a family. So that was this Tuesday. And uh, I realized this week that, um, yeah, looking back, just a little bit over a year ago, um, many of you know that before I entered into pastoral ministry, um, I worked for a charter company, an air charter company, as a pilot in Manitoba. And this company was called Fast Air. Now, this um, Manitoba, if you're familiar with the province, it has more northern communities without road access than any other province in Canada. And so what this does is all of these communities are flying communities. And this is great for business if you want to run a small airline. And so there's a lot of competitions. There's a lot of small air services based out of Winnipeg that fly up to all these northern communities. And so it's sometimes tough to tell one company from the other, but Fast Air always stood out because they were known for their reliability and for their good safety record. They were one of the only companies who had never had a fatal accident. They're still going, so that's good. But we had this old timer that worked there. Uh, he was a bush pilot. He had flown for almost every single company under the prairie skies. And throughout that time, he had accumulated ball hats and t-shirts and old uniforms and jackets and sweaters from all these other companies that he used to work for. The problem was he kept wearing them at Fast Air. He liked to wear his old uniforms from his previous employers because he said they just fit nice. They felt comfortable. They were worn in. They didn't chafe his neck like this new crisp white collared shirt did. So time and time again, the boss had to pull him aside, say, we'll just call him Jared just to protect his identity. He said, Jared, you're a fast air pilot now. You can't be wearing your old uniforms here. They identify you with our competitors you got to take those off and you got to put on the new uniform, the new company uniform. And that story comes to mind uh, as an example in looking at our text today. We're continuing on in Ephesians and Paul has a similar reminder for the Christians he's addressing. If you would open up your Bibles or follow on the screen, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And just to give you a little bit of context or as a reminder of the context, Paul has been spending the first three chapters of Ephesians exploring and explaining the gospel. He's been teaching the churches how all of history reaches its pinnacle and its climax in Jesus. And through him, God is revealed. And in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are no longer segregated. They're both invited into the family of God. And Paul goes on to say that God has a plan to ultimately bring the kingdom of heaven and earth together as Jesus is going to be reigning as king. And he's going to make things right in this world again. And those who are in Christ are called to live like these new kingdom people. But they need to learn how to think and live into this new kingdom reality. To do this, Paul really wants them to understand the gospel. 
he prays for the Christians to know God, to understand the hope and the love and the power, to receive wisdom and revelation. He really wants them to get the gospel. And here's a few verses of Ephesians where he highlights this desire for them to know and understand. Paul seems to think that if the church is going to live out their calling, they need to understand what it is they're being called to, what the gospel is, why does it matter, and how does it actually affect the way that they live. And so he spends the first three chapters, half of the book, just talking about the gospel and his desires for the Christians to know it. And now in chapter four and onwards, he moves to the application towards talking about how the gospel ought to affect every area of these Christians' lives. And this is where we pick up today in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. So let's break this down. We're going to go through this passage verse by verse and so you can track with me. But here's the gist. Here's the Cole's notes of what Paul is getting at here. He's talking to a group of Christians who weren't Jewish by descent. He's talking to Greco-Romans who were known as Gentiles. If you remember, there were two main groups in the world in the eyes of the Jewish people. There were the Jews, the people of God, and everyone else in the world was considered Gentiles. The good news in Ephesians is, he says, the gospel has changed that. There's a new race. There's a third group of people, and that's Jews and Gentiles united in Christ. So these Gentiles are Christians, and Paul is telling them, hey, don't return to the old way of living. That way of living is aimless and only leads into a downward spiral of self-destructive behavior. That's not you anymore. You are in Christ, which means you've taken off your old self and you've put on a new identity which Christ has given you. So think and then live like it. But let's break this down by the verses here. In verse 17, Paul is urging these Christians to no longer live as Gentiles live. He's not saying anything ethnically offensive here against the Greeks or the Romans inhabiting Ephesus. He's not attacking a people group. He's rebuking a way of life that is contrary to the life that God is calling them to. And this verse echoes with the first verse in the same chapter, Ephesians 4 verse 1. He's saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been given. Don't live the way you used to live. Why? Why are they not to live the way they used to live? What was the big problem? It was because the way of life before Christ was marked by a futility of the mind. 
Now, the word futility literally means aimless, pointless, meaningless, without an eternal purpose. Now, notice that when Paul calls them not to live the way they used to, he doesn't start by condemning behavior. He gets there eventually in verses 25 onward, but that's not the starting point. And he does this very, very intentionally. He wants us to notice this. The life that Paul calls the Christians to live that is worthy of their calling does not start with behavior modification, but with heart and mind transformation. To be sure, yes, Paul does eventually want these Gentile Christians to live a new life. To Their life ought to be consistent with, with this new faith they have. But he says it's got to start with the mind. It's got to start with the heart. And we can see the same principle um, in modern psychology. You ask any good counselor, when an addict goes to see a counselor for help, a good counselor is not going to tell them, just stop drinking, or just stop doing drugs, or just stop looking at pornography. Yes, the addict is hoping that the end result is going to free him from this addictive behavior, but simply trying harder not to relapse into their old habits is not going to suffice. It might work for a little while. An addict might be able to stay away from their vice through sheer willpower for a day, maybe for a week, maybe even a couple of months. But if the surface behavior is all they're trying to change, they will inevitably turn back to their old ways. See, real change doesn't happen on the outside. It doesn't happen by changing our behavior, that which is visible and noticeable on the outside. Real change starts on the inside. Paul says it has to start with the mind. The way of thinking of the Gentiles was aimless and meaningless. And it's important here again to know that Paul is not saying that people who don't know Christ have any, are, are in some way dumb or don't have an intellectual knowledge. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul was fully aware that at the time there were brilliant thinkers and philosophers, especially in that Greco-Roman world. In fact, many years before Paul came the famous Plato and Aristotle, some of the greatest philosophical minds of our history. People who deeply cared about morality, about searching for truth, about um, knowledge, this pursuit of knowledge. And the same is true today. Paul is not attacking the Gentiles' intellect. But he does say that the way of their thinking, the attitude of their minds, their outlook on life is aimless and without lasting purpose. So why is that? How did that aimlessness occur? Verse 18, Paul explains how they got to this futility of the mind. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. And one commentator, he traces this problem back to its source by just using this verse. He's kind of tracing it and tracking what happens. So he identifies the problem is a futile mind. It's aimless, it's pointless, it's without an eternal purpose. How did the Gentiles get there? Well, according to this verse, the Gentiles have no guiding and life-giving light. And in ancient Hebrew and Greek, the word light is oftentimes equated 
with understanding and with wisdom. But since God is the source of wisdom, apart from God, there is none. There is no light apart from the source of light, right? That's why their understanding is darkened. It makes no sense to seek wisdom apart from the source of wisdom. If I want to learn how to make a good espresso, I've got to learn it from the Italians. They invented it, right? The next thing he traces is they have no guiding light because they are separated from the life of God. They're separated from the source of wisdom, from the moral grounding between right and wrong. And they're separated from the life of God, not because God wanted it that way, but because of deliberate ignorance and hardness of heart. That's the source of the problem. So this commentator sums it up and he says, hearts made insensitive to God have set off a chain reaction that turned out the lights and led to meaninglessness. Okay, so we've traced back our problem to its source. An aimless, meaningless mindset is caused by our deliberate ignorance of God, and that causes a hard heart. The next question is, what does that result in? What kind of fruit does a futile mind and a hard heart bring? Verse 19 lays this out. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Their, their hardness of heart is further illustrated by having lost sensitivity. Some of your translations may say they've been calloused. What happens when you, when you get a callous, either from breaking a bone and it heals, hello, or by working with your hands, you get callous. It's, you lose sensitivity there, right? It becomes so hard that you lose sensitivity, and that is what Paul is trying to illustrate here. In fact, the Greek makes it very, very clear. The word he uses for a hard heart is porosis, which means it's a type of rock that is harder than marble. We no longer are sensitive to what is morally right and wrong, and without moral guidance, we give ourselves over to desires driven by lust and driven by greed. It's said that greed actually is the root of every sin. It is the one that encompasses all other sins. And in fact, if you trace through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus mentions greed more than any other sin. It's the continuous desire for more but never having enough. Lust, which he also mentions here through licentiousness, that means sensuality, a, a constant seeking for just whatever gives you pleasure. Lust is a desire to have what is not rightfully ours to have. And greed and lust are always at the expense of others. But desire itself is not the problem. God has designed us people to desire deeply. Desire has the potential to drive us toward what God has created us for, what he's calling us for. Desire under the lordship of Christ can accomplish great things, but unhinged from Christ's lordship, unhinged from a life, of God, a life with God, desire apart from God leads us to greed to pursuing lusts and to giving ourselves up to anything and everything that gives us pleasure, 
that's never fully satisfying and quite often at the expense of others. Uh, a friend of mine, actually, um, actually my previous pastor who grew up in this church as a little boy, Eric Anderson, he said it this way in one of his sermons that I remember. He said, the problem is not that we desire deeply. It is that we desire the wrong things, things that don't satisfy. And N.T. Wright he summarizes or paraphrases this verse wonderfully. He says, a hard, and f- a hard heart and futile mind produce moral insensitivity, the inability even to notice that some things are right and others are wrong. And once that's in place, anything goes, right? That concept of anything goes, of moral insensitivity, it's pretty evident in our society, is it not? you see oftentimes that society is actually taking a good concept, a noble concept, that in and of itself is a noble pursuit, but unhinged from God's lordship, it gets distorted to an unrecognizable degree. And this is something that society is good at doing. Take, for example, the noble pursuit of women's rights. This is a good concept. This is a good thing to pursue. But again, unhinged from the wisdom of God, unhinged from the lordship of Christ, it so quickly becomes a desire that's driven by greed and a moral insensitivity that doesn't recognize destroying an an unborn child as something wrong. Another example is the noble pursuit of equality. Another great pursuit, a good concept. But unhinged from the lordship of Christ, this too gets distorted. The equality of people has become equated with the false idea that all ideas and all opinions are equally valid as well. People are equal. That is good. That is true. And while everyone has a right to an opinion, that does not mean all opinions are equally valid. But society's understanding of that has been darkened. If I disagree with someone on their opinion, on their idea, on their way of life, I am quickly labeled as hateful. I am quickly labeled as intolerant. But this is simply not true. But it's easy to notice the big sins out there in society, right? The callousness of politics, of culture, of everything out there. But Paul, however, he's talking to Christians here. He wants them to be aware of their own tendencies to have a darkened understanding. He wants them to be aware of their own greed and misguided desires. Because it's always easy to see the sins out there, but it's not always so easy to see them inside of us, right? Paul continues and he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Those who have willfully turned their backs on God, their way of thinking is aimless, their morality is callous, their wisdom is ignorant, This way of thinking leads to a downward spiral of living that is fueled by greed and aimed at indulging in whatever brings pleasure, whatever brings power, and whatever accumulates wealth. All things that if not under Christ's lordship are pointless. And I want us to really grasp this idea. Money, sex, and power are not evil. They can be really, really good. 
they can be used purposefully and enjoyed responsibly and actually help in the flourishing of God's kingdom. But they need a Lord. Without one, they become tyrannical lords over us. That is not the way you learn Christ, Paul says. And this phrase, it's a radical new teaching. See, because people would have been familiar with having learned information, but to learn a person? That's a new concept. See, notice Paul does not start by saying that is not the way you learned the teachings of Christ or the information of Christ or what the gospel teaches. That is not the way you learned Christ. He assumes that these Christians have the information. He assumes they have heard about Christ and were taught in the gospel. But Paul takes it a step further because he knows that the gospel is not just information. He knows that truth is not just a proposition. It's a person. I had a, uh, I had a philosophy teacher back in college, and he said it was incredibly hard to get his PhD as a Christian in philosophy. And one thing that he did uh, as he was teaching philosophy to university students, he said, I never ever tell my students to pursue Jesus. And everyone was like, oh, but this is a Christian college. He says, wait a minute. He says, what I do is I tell all my students, pursue truth. And once you find it, you will find Jesus because he is truth. Paul says, I assume you know truth. You have a relationship with the very person that is truth. You were taught in Christ. You were taught in Christ to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love those verses. This is the core of what Paul is getting at. Here's where the good news starts to happen. But to really understand what Paul is getting at, a lot of our English translations, they leave us with some questions. The main question being, okay, if you look at these verses, it sounds great, all this putting off and putting on and renewing of the mind. But it leaves us with some questions like, is the putting off of your old self and the putting on of your new self, is that something we continuously do? Or is that a one-time act? What does it mean to be renewed in the spirit of our minds? It sounds great, but what does it mean? How do we do that? How do we receive that? To answer these questions, it's helpful to actually compare these verses with some of Paul's other writings. See, this, this language of putting on the new, of putting off the old, of being renewed, this is very typical Pauline writing. And you see it in Corinthians, you see it in Colossians, you see it in Romans. So it's good to compare how he words that in his other passages. And in looking at Paul's other writings, the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new are one-time acts. They happen at our conversion. When we place our faith in Christ, we take off that old self. That's a one-time thing. And Christ gives us a new identity. 
If you want to dig deeper, you can go look at an interlinear Bible, the one that has the little Greek lines below it and an explanation. Because in the passage of Ephesians, it's a little harder to tell. Is this a one-time act or is this a continuous thing? But the Greek will tell you this is a one-time act. This is, this is once and done. And this is great news for us, friends. This means that in Christ, you are no longer defined by your old self. Your past mistakes, your hurts, your struggles and failures, even though they may be ongoing, no longer define you. Christ took that with him on the cross, and by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, he also gives you and me new lives, new identities. Ephesians says it as well. It says we are not called sinners, but saints. Not because we're perfect, but that's who we are in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for us. We are no longer separated from God, but adopted as his sons and daughters. This is great news. And in Romans, Paul goes on a long rant about this. If you want to read Romans 6, 7, and 8, and he says, that you are no longer a slave to sin. The new self is free from the power of sin. But here's my problem. I'm a skeptic. And maybe you can relate as well. If this is true, if putting off the old and putting on the new is a one-time act, then why do I still struggle with sin? If in Christ I am indeed a new creation, why do temptations and greed and lustful desires still have a foothold in my life? If I'm truly free from being a slave to sin, why do I still have anger? Why do I struggle with old vices or act out in selfish ways? First, it's important to note that Paul himself identifies with our struggle. In Romans 7, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. And this is where I think it's important for us to do a little bit of theology. It's really important for us to understand the concepts of justification and sanctification. Big words. But they are words that each Christian should have a deep understanding of. To be justified is to be made right before God. That is something Jesus did for us. He took on our unrighteousness and paid for our debt because we couldn't. We are given life instead of death. We are given the ruling by the judge of innocent and not guilty. When we placed our faith in Christ, he said, take off your prison clothes, you're a free person, and put on these new clothes. And yet we still struggle with sin. I actually wrestled with this because I don't have an easy answer. I wrestled with this as I was studying this passage. And in my readings, I came across this thought. It says, although the old man has been put aside and the new man has been put on, there is a tendency to try to put the old man back on. It's familiar. We're used to it. And we tend to want to put that old self back on. Just like Jared at Fast Air who had been given a new job and a new crisp uniform to reflect the company that he was to identify with, 
he still tended to put on his old ones, his old uniform, because it was, it was what was familiar. It was comfy. It was worn in. We struggle with sin because although we've kicked the old person out of the driver's seat of our car, he's still in the car. And we all know how bothersome backseat drivers can be. While this is a comical picture, it does point to a biblical reality. This reality of already, but not yet. This is a state that we are in. What do I mean by that? God's kingdom has already begun. With Jesus came the inbreaking of God's kingdom. His kingdom has already defeated the kingdom of sin and death, but the full reality of heaven and earth becoming one has not yet been completed. We still await the full reign of God's kingdom here on earth. And in the same breath, the church, the people of God, we are already the bride of Christ, but the full consummation of that marriage has not yet taken place. And the power of sin has already been defeated. That old self has been defeated. But evil has not yet been eliminated. And so it is with us individually who are in Christ. We already have new identities as sons and daughters of God. We need to remind ourselves of that. But the restoration process of who God has made us to be and who he is making us to be has not yet been completed. As I was thinking about this restoration process, um, I was thinking of uh, a project I recently did. We recently bought a dining table from, that I found on Kootenai Buy and Sell. You can get great stuff on there. And uh, as a Manitoban, I know how to bargain, so got a good deal on it. But on the picture, it looked like a great table. And as I looked at it, I noticed how banged up it was and how scratched it was and how many crayon marks and sticky marks and gross, unidentifiable pieces of food were stuck onto it. So I purchased it, and Paul Van Cassiel actually uh, lent me his sander, which I held hostage for far too long. But I began this slow, long process of restoring this old, banged-up, scratched, dented table. And it took a long time. I'm not an experienced woodworker, so I had to look up a lot of YouTube videos. But I sanded it, and all of this stuff came off. But it was still kind of rough, so I, I discovered I needed a finer grit sandpaper, and I sanded it again, and it felt a lot better. And now I needed to stain it. Looking at the instructions, oh, now I gotta wait for it to dry and stain it again. All right, now we're done. No, no, now I have to seal it. Okay, put a layer of sealant on it. No, now I have to sand it, reseal it, sand it, reseal it, do that three times. It was a long process. But after it was finally done, I have a beautiful table that is now being marked up with crayons by Anaya. The process of becoming like Christ, of being made holy, has already begun. It's just not quite finished. This is what sanctification is. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us doing this long process of restoration to make us into the true identity that God had originally made us to be like. The difference between the table and us is that the table doesn't do anything. 
It's just a thing. It stands idly by while I do all the work. We, however, are much more than a table. We don't just get to sit idly by. Yes, it is the Holy Spirit who does the transformation. But we participate. We cooperate. We engage with what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. How do we do that? How do we cooperate? How do we participate with what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in our lives? The answer is in verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And again, Paul doesn't start with behavior modification. He doesn't say, well, just try harder to be a Christian. He says you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Just trying harder is not going to work. I'm not, I'm not a computer expert, so you can ask Marvin and Rudy and Lane to correct me if I'm wrong here. But when a processor, the brain of a computer, is fried, trying harder to hit the enter button isn't going to do any good. I've tried it many times. Trying to turn off the computer and turn it back on again if the processor is fried isn't going to solve the problem. The computer needs a new brain. It needs, or its brain, needs to be fixed. Its mind needs to be renewed before the commands I give it, with my broken hand, are going to work. Our minds need to be continuously renewed if the behaviors we want to adopt are going to work. This is part of the sanctification process. It's led by the Spirit, but requires our participation. And the tense here in Greek of renewing the spirit of your mind, that's not a one-time thing. That's an ongoing, continuous thing. So what is our takeaway for today? How do we participate? How do we cooperate with this renewal of the mind process that the spirit is wanting to do in us? The way we participate is by seeking to understand the gospel. And I'm not just saying, be familiar with the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not what I'm saying. It's good to be familiar with those. But seek to understand the gospel. Seek to bring it into every part of your life. Like a marinade that infuses every part of the meat with flavor, we are to marinate in the gospel, letting its flavor soak into every part of our life. Timothy Keller, in his book, Prodigal God, he says it this way. He says, we must feed on the gospel, as it were, digesting it and making it part of ourselves, like a nourishing meal. But we've got to eat regularly, right? That is how we grow. The gospel is about so much more than just a free ticket to heaven. The gospel, properly understood, is going to affect every area of our life, here and now, if we, are to, if we are open to the Spirit. Because in it, in the gospel, we find Jesus. Through it, we hear the Spirit, and by it, we learn to renew the way we think. Which will produce real change in the way we live. I'm going to close with two practical examples that Timothy Keller gives. Two practical examples of how the gospel can renew the attitude of our mind. 
There are endless examples that we can get, but I'm just going to give us two to chew on. Let's take money and generosity, for example. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I know the Bible talks about being generous, and we're encouraged to do that. I want to become more generous. This is not going to happen simply by putting pressure on your will to do so. Begrudgingly giving more as your knuckles are still white from pinching that knuckle, that nickel, knuckle, nickel, does not make you a generous person. That's behavior modification. Instead, we should reflect on how do we think about money? What role does money play in my life? Is it a means by which I seek approval and respect from others? Is having money where we find security and a sense of control over our life? Is money first and foremost my hard-earned possession so I can do with it however I please? Or do we actually recognize that all good things, including the ability to work, the ability to earn money, are actually gifts from God? Do we recognize that this resource is meant to provide for us, but it is also meant to bless others. It is also meant to further God's kingdom. Does God's generosity to you compel you to a life of worry-free generosity? Because you actually genuinely believe that God provides for his own. Don't get me wrong, worry-free generosity does not mean reckless, irresponsible giving. That's not what it means. Generosity is never about giving what we don't have. It is simply being open-handed with what we do have. The question here is, where does your heart place its trust? What attitude of the mind do we have in thinking about money? The answer you give depends on whether we believe the world's narrative about money or whether your mind is actually being renewed by the way the gospel defines provision and money and generosity and security. The last example is on marriage. You want to strengthen your marriage. The attitude of our mind, or the attitude of the mind of our culture would say, well, if your partner isn't making you happy, or if you just don't feel the love and attraction you once did, it's time to move on. Do whatever makes you happy, right? But the gospel, the gospel's view of marriage is never self-seeking. It's always other-focused. True love always is other-focused. We could go through many more examples, but we'd be sitting here all day, and so I'll stop there. But if you are interested in digging deeper and letting the gospel challenge your attitude of the mind in all areas of your life, let me suggest a couple of resources for you. The first one, obviously, being the gospel. Don't just be familiar with it, but let it soak in. Let it challenge you. Ask the Spirit to reveal how this impacts areas of your life. I had a, I had a New Testament professor whose assignment for his PhD was to do a, a thesis on the Gospel of Mark. And so he read the Gospel of Mark, he said, 30 times within a semester. That's four or five months he read it 30 times. And he began to read it because it was an assignment, he said what ended up happening was that he met Jesus. Let the gospel soak into your life. The second book that I want to recommend, and it's kind of a helpful guide to interpreting 
the gospel is a book that is, uh, I brought here and I placed it here and I don't know where it went, but it's called Kingdom Ethics. And it's by Stassen and Gushy. Kingdom Ethics. It is by far in my top five favorite books. By far in my top five favorite formative books for my own life. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to invite you guys to come forward. Let me close with this last thought from Keller's book, Prodigal God. He wraps up his examples of generosity and faithfulness in marriage. He wraps up his examples by saying this. What makes you faithful or generous is not just a redoubled effort to follow moral rules. What makes you faithful or generous is not just a redoubled effort to follow moral rules. Rather, all change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in your heart. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for this new life you have given us, for this new self and identity that you offer us. Lord, teach us to immerse ourselves in knowing and understanding your word. May your Holy Spirit give us soft hearts and ears to hear and eyes to see and the power to live out the gospel in every area of our life. Teach us to think and live like the new creations that we are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.